This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I get to chat with Aaron Zygman. Aaron and I get down to the nitty-gritty of his beginnings with composing music all the way through working on The Notebook and so much more. Aaron has such a way of articulating the way he sees music and we just we cover really quite literally everything. So, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Aaron Zygman. Keep on keeping on. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me is Aaron Zygman. Aaron, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, I'm very honored to be here with you, Clayton. Thank you so much. Childhood Dreams, were they about music? Great title for a song, by the way. Uh, uh, ch- my Childhood Dreams, of course, as, as somebody who has a very active nightlife, I, I vivid, I'm a, a very vivid uh, and active dreamer. I, 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 I can remember dreams from my childhood, actually. Uh, but with with your question, you know, what what were your childhood dreams like growing up? I will. I can kind of give you a few different perspectives, a uh, perspective on a few different things, rather. So, one of them was probably when I had to start performing recitals and and all that stuff around probably, I would say, seven to eight years old, I used to have nightmares of <laughs> forget, like n- knowing none of the music, uh, especially if it was for four hands or a, a, a fair amount of my recitals that age would be with another pianist and or by myself and, and, and just completely having a nightmare about not knowing the material and not have done any practicing and completely failing. <laughs> uh, so, so it was kind of a, maybe a fearful dream. And then I used to have uh, these dreams of, I was a big, uh, I was a big Trek head, Star Trek head when I was a kid. One of the reasons why I was, I think what drew me into Star Trek so much was the music, uh, written by Alexa- Alexander Cur- Courage, who I used to think was, I, when I was little, I used to think it was Alexander Courage. I, I, the music was so impressionistic and Revelian and had a Debussy quality to it. It was, I always thought the guy, I thought he was French, but it was really Jack Courage, <laughs> who, be, who, who, who after, who did write the original Star Wars, uh, excuse me, Star Trek theme. And of course, Jerry Goldsmith did the big, most of the movies before he couldn't do them anymore. And it was like, like I said, it was very, Jack Courage became Jerry Goldsmith's main orchestrator for many years. So I didn't know Jack had a, I think he was from New York. But anyway, my point being, uh, I used to have dreams, getting to your question. I also remember having dreams of flying in the air, these were the best dreams, flying and jumping. Have you ever had jumping dreams where you, you f- jump up and you don't land for like like five minutes? Those, those are the best. Those were like, and I used to have dreams of, of, of jumping and flying around the, the, the space or space or, or the sky with, with Captain Kirk or Spock, and we were like buddies. <laughs> so, so, so I, and I remember those very vividly. And uh, so those were two kinds of dreams. One that was fearful of not doing well with my piano uh, 
renditions or recitals that I was responsible for preparing for. And also my kind of fun and, and dreams that I wish would have never ended, like flying in the air and not landing and jumping for eight minutes and, or, or even, <laughs> la even lasting 60 seconds in the air and being able to do that. So those were kind of, I don't know if that covers that area for you. Yes. Do you dream about music? Yeah. Yeah. Music, my dreams of mu for, in music and dreaming about compositional, let's say, you know, melody. I wouldn't necessarily. So I started dreaming about melody and different various parts of music, probably starting around hmm, 16, 17. And then later on in my in my early 30s, I really became much more vivid. And I would actually, at that point, whatever I dreamt uh, or whatever I was dreaming, and if it was a musical, if it was a melodic phrase, if it was a live motif, uh, I, would write, I would get up and I would write it down so I wouldn't forget it because it would be exactly in my dream. I'd go to the piano and I would be exactly what it was. So I would just do just write it out on paper and then go back to bed. So because I knew if I woke up I wouldn't remember it. And there's actually a tone poem that I actually wrote years ago about uh, the uh, uh, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. I dedicated uh, probably a good year and a half of my life. I mean, literally the night that he was killed. I I. I dreamt the opening quote and never stopped writing. And so I've had many, many kind of, uh, many, uh, many times where I've dreamt melody and then written them out. So written those phrases out. Do you see colors when you're writing music? Yeah. When I write, I, I see, uh, I, I, because when I sit at the piano and I'm writing, I don't necessarily even though the piano is my mastered instrument, I don't see the piano as a piano per se when I'm playing unless I'm just playing to play like bebop or, or, or some classical piece or whatever I'm doing or just improv, you know, improvisation. And I just want to let it out, just, just play, which I do you know, fairly often or late at, e late at night before I go to bed or something like that, I may do that. And if I feel it's something interesting, I'll just turn on my iPhone and just record it. But I don't see the piano as a piano. Whenever I sit down and, and, and play, I kind of, after a little bit of improvisation and it starts to formulate, I look at the piano as the orchestra or whatever, you know, in this case, whatever film I'm, film I'm scoring or if it's a concert piece I'm writing, it's usually what is, what is the orchestra doing? And that, that comes from the piano. As we know, the piano is the... The uh, you know all the registers and all the various nuances of the orchestra just exist in the piano schematic. So uh, and uh, so that's kind of a. Do you see each octave as a different instrument? Yeah, I'll see where I'm at, and a lot of times, if I'm involved in the actual, uh, I've already started a piece. For, let's say, for instance, whether it's for film or, like I said, concert, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll see where I'm at key signature-wise or, or key-wise, and I'll look at where the lowest part of the 
orchestra is going to be most effective and where the highest part of the orchestra is going to be most effective. And if I'm thinking of a specific instrument, right, that it's going to be a integral voice, inter integral voice in that schematic, then I will, I will actually change keys and and make it so that it's right. For instance, like if I think alto flute is going to be uh, prevalent, then I want to make sure I'm in a key that where nothing's really going to be going below uh, A, below middle C or G sharp concert. So and nothing higher than probably you know. Uh, mm, D last line in the staff or something like that. So, uh, uh, you know, and, and other instruments as well. So, but mainly from a 2D perspective, I, I like to look at the piano as, okay, it's gonna, it's gonna be its biggest moment here and it's gonna, and I'm gonna need the low end and I'm gonna need the high end to be effective. And as we both know, I can't take the 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 highest part of the the brass, which are which are the trumpets, and I can't take the lowest part of the brass, i.e., tuba or or contrabass trombone or or, or uh, other instruments that you know I want I want it to be as effective as possible. So it just depends in a way of what I'm going after. First learning piano was your mother your first teacher? If so, what did she teach you about discipline? Well, my mom was a, first of all, she was a, she was a great pianist in her own right. Uh, I think she gave up her concert pianist dreams for a few things. One was for, for dance, and one was she had, she got married at 22 and had kids early. So in those days, you either dedicated your life to something or, or you know, it's not that, I mean, she she was she was uh, actually she choreographed for uh, she went to UCLA and she worked with uh, Carol Burnett and other people. She was very much into ballet. She was into piano. She uh, but but to answer your question, she I, I, at four years old I really wanted to play the piano, and so my brother was playing the piano at that time, and my sister was also playing. And my mom, for some reason, didn't want me to start till I was five. So when my brother would play something, I would go up and kind of just play what he played, uh, just kind of by ear. And so she got, got it by about four and a half that I really wanted to play. And so she started me. And she, she didn't really, because I wanted it so badly, I didn't need to be disciplined. It's whatever I was taught very much in, in the guise of probably a lot of pianists in the beginning of their careers as a pianist. By the time I was seven or eight, that's when she had to instill discipline uh, in me and, and upon me. And I was forced to practice, <laughs> I use the word forced, uh, at least uh, I had to do 45 minutes to an hour in the morning before school, and I had to do another hour and a half at least after school. And that was like... That was enough uh, for a little while before it became more involved. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, and, and yeah, so she taught me. She was very, very, she was the disciplinarian as far as piano is concerned in my musical life. And all my musical influences and all the musical genes come from her side of the family. How has that discipline translated into every project you've worked on since? I, uh, uh, I, I have to be disciplined. Uh, it, it, one 
with the with the experience of well, you know, what really taught me to be disciplined, especially, is when I uh, broke into film and doing multiple films at once. So you have to learn how to compartmentalize your time, and you because everybody's expecting you to deliver. So uh, I I had no problem with that, and actually enjoyed that challenge. So I. I am uh, definitely a disciplined person, uh, especially, and I work probably not in every scenario, but I would say 75% of the time I work better with deadlines. Switching topics real quick. Do you remember the first song you composed? (laughs) Uh, I think I was, if it was a song, and I, I do remember writing out like kind of poetry and trying to make a lyric out of uh, a melodic choral structure. I think I was probably nine or 10 years old when I started to get into that. Was it titled? No. As far as what I remember, uh, the first kind of real written out chamber piece and getting away from a song, let's see, I think, uh, so so actually I wrote kind of classical hybrid chamber pieces like I, I remember writing a piece for for uh soprano saxophone flute and piano when i was like 12 12 and a half 13 and of course i wrote it out and 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 got it recorded uh and uh, so that's kind of i remember writing a, a few pieces like that and then uh in high school i wrote which I can't find to this day. There's a, I wrote a like a musical, on the uh, on the ta- on Candide, uh, and it was just kind of rhythm section. But I wrote a bunch of songs, so that was like my, tenth grade year. So it must have been, uh, I think it's fourteen and a half or fifteen. Fourteen was the year I decided to music was going to be my life. That's when I made the, fourteen and a half rather was the definite decision that music was going to be it uh unbeknownst what happened was there an event it was about 14 and a half yeah there was actually was an event so i was uh as a youngster i was into sports and music so my dad was very heavy into the sports and and i and i love sports mainly uh basketball and tennis and i and i i was fairly good at both and tennis uh propelled me into uh, I, w- I actually was ranked in Southern California in t- 10s, 12s, 14. I was ranked six in, Cal- Southern, in Southern California, and I was, and I played national tournaments. And so, between 14 and a half and 15, I was invited. I went back to play with uh, a few Ivy League schools. Uh, my dad had, however, that got set up. And that was my dad's vision for me. He wanted me to go to some school like that, either an Ivy League school or uh, some uh, prestigious university and play tennis. And then he t- even told me, he said, you could you know, take a, take a year off and, and if you're good enough, play satellite. And then I want you to come work for me. <laughs> so... So I went back and I went to Princeton and played with a few guys. And then I went to Harvard and I played with uh, some guys. And all the guys that I was playing with were 
two years, two and a half, three years older than me, and I had and I and I knew them from the Southern Cal sectional uh, circuit at that time, and then I wound up at Yale, and I remember as clear as a day, I'll never forget the night that that the light went on. So I was at Yale, and I was I was bunking and staying with a uh, a guy who was playing I think two for the team. His name was his name was John Steeple, and. A uh, really, really, really good tennis player, and and he came from the Southern Cal section, and so he says to me, "So do you want to go to a piano recital tonight?" I said, "Are you kidding? That's my instrument." Because I think he futzed around and played gu guitar or something like that on the side. But uh, and I, so I said, "Yeah," I was all excited about going to this uh, recital, and at that time I was really into Keith Jarrett Cohen concert, uh, uh, Ko. L H N, I believe, right? See the, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, so that was right. Remember, do you, I don't know if you remember this record. Uh, it was a, it's one of Keith Jarrett's pinnacle, incredible records. Where I believe it was just straight improv. It was, it was a live concert of like two hours of improv, and I was. It was like a fusion, kind of somewhere wow. between bebop and fusion, which was that period, right, of the late '70s. And uh, I really was into this record for some reason, and uh, and him. And when I went to Yale to this recital, I went to the music to the hall, and there was about 200, 250 people. And on stage comes this guy, and he starts playing trans like he's playing that record. He starts playing transcriptions from it. So he must have done the transcribing himself, or or found some because there are no known. I believe transcriptions of that particular record. Uh, so if I'm pronouncing it wrong, colon colon or colon 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 uh, is is was is, as I as I remember it. Uh, and like I said, I may be pronouncing the German aspect of it wrong. But uh, anyway, after he played, this guy was incredible, and I I'm, I'm thinking that's what I want to do. That's me. That's what I want to do. I don't want to do all this. I don't want to wind up, you know, trying to play professional tennis and at 35, burned out knees, and, and I'll never be a champion. Maybe I'll do okay on the circuit, but I'll, I'll, I'll never be Pete Sampras. I'll never be Andre Agassi. And, and believe me, I played with, I, I played with his younger, his uh, older brother. So I, I played with a lot of guys who did wind up, you know, doing really well uh, in, uh, on the circuit, and, and did become. Uh, entities in, in professional tennis, but I, uh, I'm not I'm not going to bore you with my tennis story. But that night was so was so it was so pinnacle and so uh, it was such an epiphany that I knew from that moment on that I just wanted to be a great pianist. That that was it. It wasn't about. I mean, the writing was already kind of starting and was there, and composition I had a huge interest in, but just just playing, just being a great player. That's what I wanted to be. And then when I came home to to uh, to uh, San Diego, which is where I'm from, I knew, since I knew that's what I wanted to do, whenever <laughs> the joke was on my parents, or my dad mainly, was we were supposed to go to tennis practice every day after school, and I would tell the people that were giving me a ride because I was, st I started to engage more teachers, and my parents, my mom did get me a jazz teacher aside from 
the two classical teachers I had and one 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 you know theory one uh, just wrote performance and I found a few other guys that because I worked in a music store because I, I had to pay for things I wanted like I wanted a Rhodes elect, uh, piano that electric piano at the time and an Arp Odyssey I was really into Chick Corea too when I was by when I was 12 I was into Chick Corea where have I known you before that whole uh, that uh, uh, light as a feather by the way that great album um, amongst many great albums from him and now he sings and now he sobs and anyway I I would tell uh, this particular person or the mother that was was taking all of us to tennis practice at a place called Morley Field which is in in San Diego I said just just tell my mom I went and I'll and I'll be home in time for dinner and and I would go downtown work at this music store for two three hours then I would study uh, I was taking lessons from a guy, I'm not going to mention his name, uh, but I was taking lessons from a guy who had been in Herbie Hancock's band and was in downtown San Diego and kind of, in a way, you could tell he was kind of down and out in a way, but he knew a lot, he was, he knew, a, he, for some reason he was a good bebop piano player, even though Herbie, of course, was Herbie. and. Uh, so it was. Uh, I think for I think this guy played in Herbie's band for a minute as a drummer, but he was also a great pianist. So uh, he taught me a lot about bebop and angularity and and just all kinds of uh, just you know the way to approach uh, jazz, and uh, and it was fascinating to me. So I was kind of hanging out with very interesting people. <laughs> Uh, when I was yeah. very young, and then there was another. There was there's some really great. Like I don't know if you ever heard of Nathan East, who I played on a ton of records with when I was in my uh, as a studio pianist. He's one of the best, of course, uh, renowned bass players who came from San Diego. Uh, there were some great musicians that came from San Diego. George Deering, for instance, the guitar player who's played on every every. You know, he's uh, played on every Tommy Newman film pretty much in the last and and everybody else's film. I've been working with George for 20 years. Uh, he came from Escondido, which was part of San Diego. There was Peter Sprague, the guitarist. There was a there was two pianists, Butch Lacey, and a guy I studied with named Rocky Slight. I mean, Rocky Slight was like he was like a like a Bill Evans. He was just incredible. And to this day, I've been trying to find Rocky, and uh, and I have never been able, uh, with luck, to find where he's at because he was a not only an incredible influence in my life, but an amazingly, ni uh, amazingly nice person, and uh, it cared about my uh, my musicality, if you will. So that gives you a bit of an insight into my young young life, which was uh, before I even made it before I even made it up to L.A. By the way, what was the decision to move to L.A. and what was the decision to go into film scoring? Well. I wanted uh, my decision to go to LA was a geographic. I wanted to be at that time probably okay. 15 16. I was I was obviously paying attention to the credits on records. And one of my heroes at 16 was David Foster, uh who as you know was was a seriously great pianist. And at that time I was probably 16 and he was probably 30 and or whatever he was and he, he and I just was like 
you know, I was listening to, like, for instance, one of my favorite records he made with the, with the tubes was Completion Backwards Principle. I mean, David was just a genius at, at, at record production. Not only that, he was also a great studio pianist as well. So uh, I really didn't know him, and eventually I did wind up being managed by the same uh, guys who managed him, uh, Ned Shankman and Ron de Blasio, after I got my first pop hit. But I knew in order for me to, I, I, all, to go to L.A., my, my, motif, my motive was, my ulterior motive, ulterior motive was to go to UCLA. I pulled a geographic. I, yeah. got, I got accepted to UCLA uh, at the end of my junior year in high school. So I knew I was set, and then all I did was just, just woodshed because I wanted to uh, break into the studio scene as a, as a studio pianist and, and also synth programmer in, in Los Angeles. So, and that's what I did. And, and uh, also as a songwriter at that time, which would be 1980, uh, I, got my, I believe I signed with Alma Irving in 84, I'm pretty sure, yeah, 84. And so I was see, 21 years old, and I knew in order to support, have to be able to support myself, not just playing on records, but I had to have some form of also other consistent income. So what I did was I went in and made three or four demos of songs I wrote, and I kind of modeled them after, to the best of my ability, of like a David Foster production. And so... I think it opened it opened the doors for me, and the tunes were were pretty good, pretty solid, and uh, and so Alma Irving, uh, the publishing division of A uh, and M at that time, Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert's label, uh, which was their publishing, which was a, I mean they had so many incredible writers at at Alma uh, Irving. It was like it was comparative to the Brill Building in New York in a way, in a bit, because you had guys like Rod Temperton sign. Uh, Paul Williams, uh, Brenda Russell, uh, Steve Cropper, who I wound up playing with a lot. And so I became like the in-house guy who could write the charts for everybody's demos. So that kind of yeah. propelled me into the studio world. And then I started meeting more and more people. And in 85, uh, I met Stuart Levine, who I wound up uh, arranging for. He was a great producer. He did uh, Holding Back the Years with uh, Mick Hupnall. And, and, and not only that, he, his, he also produced a lot of the Crusaders records. And I was a big Joe Sample. Also, I, I forgot to mention, I was a big Joe Sample fan when I was 15, 16 as well. Amongst Oscar Peterson and Art Tatum, I could go on and on. But uh, my heroes were pretty much guys and other than like say like a guy like David Foster but I had to go to, to the jazz world like Bill Evans was a huge influence on me and and then when I discovered uh, actually discovered Joe Sample be like kind of around the same time as Bill Evans so I there's a lot of similarities between both of them and but Joe had his own distinct style right you could you could tell Joe Sa a solo from Joe Sample and a solo from Bill Evans in two seconds you know who's playing they had their own they had their own sound pianistically, and uh, and so I, I I used to transcribe stuff from uh, from both of them, from both of their solos. That was that's the thing that Rocky and two two guys who were influential influential 
uh, on me as a young youngster taught me how to transcribe solos. Back then, I'm not saying like back then, like I'm some old guy, but we were using cassette players and two tracks, right? We, we didn't have until, what was it, 84? I think 85, yeah, 85, 86, when Performer, digital Performer, or not digital, but Performer came out, that's when I graduated. I started on MSQ sequencing, and I used that for two, for a few years, and then computers started to evolve, and that's when the world opened up, right? Uh, I'll, never right. For, I'll never forget when MIDI first came out, and, and I could take a prof, Profit 5 in MIDI, and that was the coolest thing in the world. So... That's a bit of my my history as a youngster, and I wanted to score movies. By the way, I, uh, my cousin George Bassman on my mom's side, he really gave me a lot of education because he never went to conservatory. Neither did I. A lot of guys didn't. Jerry Goldsmith never went to conservatory. I think John Williams went to Juilliard for a minute, but he became uh, a phenom pianist out and uh, an arranger out in uh, California and MGM. He was the MGM house pianist. I mean, he he was the guy who played on all of Korngold's movies. Uh, and of course, we don't have to say anything more about John Williams. He's an incredible and has been an incredible force yeah. for many years. And in my view, uh, certainly as as a tunesmith, the best film composer, one of them in the in, of my top three or four in the, in in the last uh, 30, 40 years. So he certainly is a, an incredible, incredible, incredible uh, force. And uh, so uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to become a film composer when I felt I had complete command of the orchestra, which was about 26, 27 years old. I started writing string charts earlier and I had a few hits as a, as a string arranger. And, and, uh, and I did get, offered some really big jobs. I learned later that you need to say yes whenever you got a big job because if it was full orchestra because you could always get somebody to answer a question. But I was always very truthful with myself and my own abilities. So, it, like I said, it really took me till about 27 till I really felt I was comfortable doing full, full orchestral arrangements. And then, of course, I wanted to become a film composer because I wanted to get my concert works heard. So records were cool. They were yeah. great. I dug playing on them. Uh, I dug. Uh, I had a partner. We were fairly successful for Jerry Knight for a fair amount of years. I had a lot of covers as a songwriter. But I noticed when Jerry and I split up, I was really only happy when I was arranging for other guys. Don was, Stuart Levine, Gary Katz. I could go on and on. Uh, you have my discography. Uh, you know, work, work with a, a ton, yeah. ton of artists. As, as, as an arranger and also player. So, and I had fun doing both. <clears throat> when I didn't have the responsibility of producing a record, which was my first, I wanted to be a big time producer, but unfortunately, or fortunately, I got typecasted in, in a certain world and I felt that I was good. I, I wound up, <clears throat> they would let me arrange and play in, all, in, in, in these other alternative styles, but for some reason I couldn't break in into the alternative world of producing, uh, which I think you know what that means. Uh, and if I need to explain it, I will. Uh, I'd read but, that you worked on Mulan, Pocahontas, and The Birdcage. What was your connection with Disney, and what was your position in there? Uh, on, on Pocahontas, I believe it was, 
they wanted me to take an Alan Menken. I'm not sure if Stephen Schwartz was the lyricist or not, but uh, it was an Alan Menken tune from Mulan. So I'm not, I'm, and I think it was from Mulan. No, it was Pocahontas, excuse me. And they wanted me to take the Disney uh, chart, so to speak, right? And they wanted me to make it a hip hop record. So and the and the artist I do remember was John Cicada and Shawnee Wilson, and I have a lot of stories like that where I was asked today. And by the way, let me let me let me redact. I mean not redact, but go back. I have a love for just all music. Anything that to me is good is good. It, it doesn't matter what style, what ethnicity, what what you know where where you think it comes from. I I mean I worked on tons of Latin records and R&B records, at, which was called R&B at that time, right? So, and I, and, and, right. and, you know, all my influences, by the way, I had so many African-American influences that were incredible. Like, I mean, David Williams, who's like, I don't know if you know, he was Quincy's, I mean, that was, that's on Billie Jean, all those hip guitar lines. That's David Williams. Yeah. That is David Williams. He came up with those lines for the most part, unless there was a, a tune that Rod Temperton wrote that David was playing on and Rod had a specific line. And Rod was very, 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 very specific about his arrangements and his demos. He was in, and sadly, we, we lost Rod Temperton a few years ago. Uh, and, but I had uh, Jerry Knight and I both were signed at, Al at Almo and we wrote Crush on You, a lot of, we, we, we had a lot of success together. And then sadly, uh, Jerry got cancer and died. And then when he died, I just really, I just didn't really have the, that, that, you know, get up and go to want to produce records anymore. I did one record, I remember, and it was my, one of my best records I'd ever made. I did three tracks on an artist. I don't, don't need to name the artist. And it was for, <laughs> I don't need to name the label or the A&R person either, which I won't. And they, it was literally, I, I remember going over to Stuart Levine's house and playing him this record. He says, he goes, Zig, people used to call me Zig or Ziggy, whatever. This is the best record you've made. And it got, it got shelved for, for, you know, for another, she just flipped and, and the artist that I was producing. And that was it. When that record didn't hit, and didn't go in it being my best work because it was like really like it was just it was just it was just really a, so the best some of the best vocals I'd ever done and whatever anyway after that I said you know I'm done I don't want to make pop I did one thing on Christina Aguilera's come out record and I kind of got hot again as a producer but it was too late I told my manager at the time Terry Lipman I said you know I just don't want to do this anymore. I've got about enough money to last me a year and a half, and I was, I guess, what, 30 years old or 31, whatever I was. And well, let me think, yeah. let me think. No, no, I was a little older. I was, uh, I was old, I was 30, what am I saying? I was 35. So I was 35, and I just said, I'm done. Uh, in order for, if you want to do something in life, uh, and you want to be a specific something, like whether it's a film composer or you want to be, I mean, and concert writing, I have to say, you can do both, but that's a rarity. But if you really want to 
you know what I mean? If you want to be a broadcaster or you want to be uh, an artist, a painter, and you're good at it and you've got real talent, then you have to focus on that. And that's what you have to do. You can't be three things. So I knew I couldn't keep producing records and then become a film composer. I had to stop what I was doing, put it out there to the universe that that's what I really wanted to do. And, and thank God I met Nick Cassavetes and I started writing music for some of his plays and, and I would write whatever he wanted me to write. And uh, he's the one, he gave me my first break on a movie called John Q. I had done uh, writ, you know, work on other movies as an orchestrator and maybe in some other positions in, in a way that in writing for other guys. But I, uh, Nick is the one who is the reason why I'm talking to you right now. I got, I got, I have to, I'm so grateful to him. And, uh, and I had no idea really about his father's legacy or I just knew that Nick was just such an amazing force. And we hit it off, and he gave, like I said, he, he gave me my first break, but I had to earn it. It was not like John Q was a walk-in and he said, I want to hire Aaron Zygmunt. I had to prove myself to New Line. And thank God I had support from Paul Brusek and Aaron, Aaron Scully. And, 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 uh, and, when they, and when I wrote the temp score for the preview, uh, I took the money they gave me and I hired a live orchestra because that was the deal. I had to, I had to write forty percent of the temp score, then they were going to make a decision whether to keep me on. So I just didn't want to mess wow. around. So that's uh, yeah. that's that's why I'm talking wow. to you here today. I, I may have you know, as they said on an interview once in Laughway, because critiques and reviews. Someone told me one day, it was like 2006 or seven. they said, you should go online and see what some of the really cool stuff people say about you. So I, I, I said, really? I don't, I don't really like to read reviews. So I went online, and the first interview I popped up on The Notebook was from some entity, and, and he said, The Notebook, uh, some of the most soulless melodies ever written by a composer named Aaron Zygmunt, Adeptly performed by the Hollywood Symphony Orchestra. We hope we never hear from him again. <laughs> no, it's so it's just funny because I had to laugh since since then I've never looked at another review with the exception of a few times. And so because it's so easy to get baited into that world and it's just it's just not constructive to to one's own psyche. <laughs> so so this is a, this is a quick quick little funny funny act, and then I'll let you uh, go on. Uh, after the after John Q, which was actually a successful film as far as numbers and things like that, uh, and of course Denzel Washington, Robert Duvall, what a and James Woods, and what a heck of and Han Hayes, what a heck of heck of a cast, but. Uh, of course, Denzel Washington couldn't, and Robert Duvall, I mean, they wouldn't know how to act. They can make any film. But, you know, in credit, in credit to Nick, uh, you know, I have to say, Nick's had some pretty tough assignments over his career, and he's delivered every time. There isn't one film that has not been successful that he's not done for a studio or whatever, because the guy's a, he's a maverick. He knows what he's doing. But after John Q, I worked a little bit, and then I didn't work for a minute, but I, and then I had an opportunity to do, this is like, you know, maybe within a year or a year and a half after John Q. And I'll never forget this. I, I went to go interview for a film that was actually a pretty big budget film. And I, and I had the gig. But 
I watched this film, and I did, I wasn't quite after this film. I had the I, I really understood how to take meetings and 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 you you know that's another process with directors and and producers, and it was a really really dark film. Yet I didn't. I went to this meeting, and Nick had had gotten me the kind of the the gig or was the gig was kind of there so Nick had set it up so I went down to this interview and uh it wasn't just Nick it was also his producer Butch Kaplan who both were pushing me for this job and I meet with everybody and they say so man so what do you think about this film you, you know what do you think Aaron and I go well it's really dark man uh and everybody the whole the whole energy of the table just went like yeah like uh-oh but the emotional value is really intrinsic and I tried to bounce back and then when I didn't get the gig Nick calls me up he says Aaron he says you got to learn one thing when you take a meeting this is the best script I've 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 ever heard I've ever read in in, in my entire you know the, the way he you know he was he was I mean I don't get that what's the word uh um, I'm not phony, so I do. If I love a film or whatever, I'll see it. But but it was a funny kind of lesson in why I didn't get that job, and then uh, and then you know whatever. Every, the the rest is uh, all kind of uh, generic. Here I am talking to you. Anyway, so go ahead. I mean, it's crazy because you're so a part of people's lives, and I'm willing if we could talk about the the Notebook for a little bit and basically where that came from for you creating the main theme and everything else in that movie i'll tell you exactly i, I can answer your question very succinctly and it won't take an hour uh <laughs> i okay so the opening theme the main title of the notebook so one thing about nick is when he's when a movie's greenlit and he's got the script or whatever nick will nick on pretty much every film, on, especially on the Notebook, I went out with him when they went, were scouted. When they were scouting, what composer goes out on a scouting venture with their with the director that he's going to be working with on the film that early in the game, right before right. before right. Inception, before one frame is shot, before the storyboards are even up, right? So I went to right. South Carolina, a place called Edisto, South Carolina. I was with Nick Cassavetes, one of the producers, and maybe one of the line producers. So, so they were looking for a, you know, uh, they were looking for uh, Young Alley's house, which would have been an, an old style, architecturally, you know, just huge mansion that would have been uh, probably dated back to the 1880s, 90s, or whatever, or early early 20th century because this takes place in the 1930s, right? So, and 40s. And so he, so we had like three or four paddle boats, and, I, and I'm and i not kidding, I went into the most, it was like being in Disneyland times 8,000. It was like being in a Monet painting. And so my first experience, it was uh, early summer, and we and uh, we paddled out, it was must have been a mile, and then back, it was a total, but um, close to a mile. Uh, it was a good 350, 400 acres, this, this, uh, this property. So I, I was like so moved by the landscape, I started taking pictures. And when I got home to LA, I put those pictures on my piano and I wrote that theme. I wrote the opening theme. 
And then they were shooting, they were set to start shooting in about two months. So I sent the opening titles to Nick. It was when I, my original draft was about four and a half minutes long. I think it got cut down to about just under three or two and a half to three minutes. But it, it, you know, it was basically the same thing. Uh, and just solo piano. And I just sent out the solo piano version. Now, I had always intended on orchestrating, at least putting some type of string, just just beds and in, in, in a little movement with the chord changes. I always wanted to do that so badly. And when I came out to my first uh, visit to see Nick on the set, he says, come here, I got a surprise for you. And he came in, I, I, I went into a tent, and they had these monitors, and they, he showed me uh, that he just took that piece and he edited it, edited it to the f opening titles. So that's one of the few experiences I've had where I don't know if you know this about Ennio Morricone, but but uh, a lot of Ennio Morricone stuff, Ennio Morricone stuff has been written and edited to the film, and a lot of it he's written to the film. But there's been both. In my experience with this, with the notebook, is that particular piece of music was not. I didn't write to picture. Nick just took it and 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 took it as a, you know, kind of like what like what Quentin Tarantino does to all of his uh, musical stuff. He he uses other scores and other sound bites, and he's such a genius and does different. I'm not saying that my piece was genius. I'm just saying his his approach. So he took Nick took that opposite approach of right, taking the right. music and making the pictorial work with the music rather than the other way around. And I didn't and uh, so that's how that evolved. That's the answer to how the opening title happened. And by the way, I just there's only one pencil draft that exists of that. I found it I think a few years ago. I didn't know I even had it cuz it's not in my main score uh uh, of the you know I have the score obviously right. uh, 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 it's I orchestrated the entire that movie I orchestrated the entire film uh, it's all in my pencil so uh, it's uh, I gave it to actually Aaron Scully who's head of New Line who was the head of music and that was her movie at that time and we were yeah, we're such good friends and so I, I I gave her the only existing pencil sketch of that theme uh, about two and a half years ago as a present, three years ago present. So I don't have it anymore, but... Uh, That's I, amazing because it just came to you. Does it always come to you or do you sometimes have to find inspiration no, elsewhere? It, if it's landscape driven, I did, I've done this on probably at least of my 60 plus films. I, I, I've done this at least on 15, maybe 20 films where I, if there's landscape or... I felt being on set was was important to feel the vibe, and I was hired early on. Then I would say, to be fair, ten to fifteen films I've I've written things either after either feeling the landscape of where we are or seeing very early cuts on uh, of of footage that was really so well shot that I just kind of had it in my head, and then I felt it, and then I would write. I like to write overtures, if you will, Clay. I like to write, uh, an, if, if the movie can take it. Now, I'm doing a, a drama now. In fact, I just finished a drama. Uh, I, my last score was very atraditional. I did a film that's all about the bias of the LGBT community 
with an incredible female director named uh, Lisa, uh, Lisa Donato. And we just finished a film called Gossamer Fil Fields, excuse me, Gossamer Folds. Uh, and uh, uh, it was uh, really so well done. And it's, so it's an A traditional score. And then I'm getting ready to do another film, uh, also an A traditional score called uh, Who, Who Are You People with Emma Horvath. And I love doing A traditional scores. I like both. I like most people consider me traditional orchestral driven tune smith type of person but i like writing kind of the unobvious too so i'm very grateful that i'm having a chance now to even in this these horrible times uh, and of course my heart goes out to everybody in the world and all the writers and all the performers especially the musicians Especially as we, who cannot, who cannot, you know, we can't assemble an orchestra. I mean, there's few things going on in Germany and Vienna, but in, in, you know, for all my, my family here in LA and, and everybody, I just, my heart goes out to these incredible talented people that without them, none of these great scores that you hear from other composers would be e even possible. And that's, that's really what makes, right? It, it, the power of numbers, it's interesting when I when I got into film scoring. I I I as opposed to film as opposed to record production. Of course, you learn to put your ego down, but in but in film scoring, you have to have so little ego, and yet you have to have conviction because you're an artist. So it's a fine line, right? But I I I could I'll never forget the day I sat in with especially with New Line. And my first film, John Q, and I was with these 30, I'm like, finally, I'm sitting in a room and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, finally, I don't even think I'm even close to this, like being the smartest person here. I'm a dummy compared to all these people, like listening to all these incredible people speak and incredible producers and, 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 and different peoples in different areas of post and talking about what's needed. I'm like, this is a, such a fascinating world. And I'm so blessed and, and, and humbled to be a part of it, and that, that was such a relief. I finally felt like I was an artist, rather than, you know, sometimes producing records felt like being an artist, like the one I told you about that didn't go, and sometimes it felt like I was getting the coffee. So it's both sides, you know? You're making the artist record, and, and you gotta visualize that record, but in film, you're achieving, it's all story, and you're, it's a collaborative, very, very collaborative medium. It's the most. It's it's the, probably the most collaborative medium, in on on planet for music, uh, at least for me. And uh, and then then of course there's the the other side of writing concert music, which gives me that ability to do whatever I want, which is so much fun. <laughs> so uh, as well. So there's just so much diversity in your work. I mean, it's so wide ranging. Yeah, it was fun to go from like the Notebook to Alpha Dog, where it became like a score score writing, writing dupes of uh, some of our great artists of of the day, like Trent Reznor, and and kind of having to, so having downward spiral tempt and having to cop that or a Bowie thing or Black Sabbath. I mean, Nick must have tempt twenty five different songs in that movie and I had to cop them all and because uh, the budget didn't allow for a lot of them to be used but uh, 
but uh, since of my background, I, I could do that. And 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 believe me, it's it's uh, that that's those are actually the hardest scores, because you're working with bands in different genres of music, including rap you know, in, in that movie. And so I had different yeah. team different teams. And if Nick wanted to change something, I got to bring the team back in conjunction with my direction. But it's much more complex than just sitting at the piano and. Or, or, or with with samples and with a few guys and just churning out a, a an a traditional score or an orchestral score, right? Wow, I feel like we could just go for another hour or so. But uh, I am curious, when you lose focus, is there any way that you you get back on track? Do you lose focus? I, I rarely lose focus. I don't have writer's block. I never have that issue, uh, and I don't think I've ever had it. Only because I I just. I, I'm, I'm, it's, it, I don't mean to say this as somebody coming from an arrogant place. It's just that I know no, that no. there's always a, a way to solve a problem. And so my brain will always yeah. go to, to another, another solution. Uh, and, uh, and then do I surprise my, myself with some of the melodic lines and songs I've come up with? Um, I think everything for me comes from a natural state. So I don't think that anything is forced, i.e., i.e. surprising myself with uh but yes actually on some cases with a melodic line there have been some funny moments i'll be at the piano and playing it's only happened a few times but all of a sudden my left pinky slipped to a different note or something i'm like that's actually pretty cool but it was totally by accident um so and then you ask me when when am i at my best i'll tell you when i'm at my best as far as writing wise is after exercise is a big part of my regime. And I'm at my best when, you know, the exercise is tantamount, but also, obviously, I'm at my best also if I've got something emotional to inspire me as well. So there's a, it's a two-prong two answer. But, uh, but, I have to, but I have to always remember what enables me to write music is being healthy. And so that's a really, a really big deal. Are there any changes that you've made that have increased positivity and decreased negativity? Yeah, absolutely. I I have uh, in the last three four years taken a, a, a large accountability of letting go, the letting go of my past, and we have to we along the journey we have experiences. Not every experience is a perfect one, as we know in life relationships even sometimes on a film uh i'm not i'm not perfect i try to be a jedi master but i have failed at times uh and so what i've done is is really made an effort uh well i'll just be blatantly honest i went to a place called esalen in uh, big sur amazing transformation i did about two years ago it changed my life. I, I took this course in self-examination, and it really taught me how to surrender and really stay in the present. I mean, I'm in the present, but I, I've always had a tendency to hearken back maybe some things that have happened in the past that I wasn't so crazy about, that stick, you know, things that stick with us, right? Maybe a, a little resentment here or there, or something that, God, I wish that would have gone better, or I could have done better there, right? I mean... Uh, 
I'm sure you, you you're you're an A type just as well, and you're a high. You 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 try to do the best. We all try to do the best we can, whether we're oh, yeah. A type. Oh, yeah. And sometimes we just feel like we didn't. So the best thing to right. do is to let. For me, is I've had to let go of those times, and just I look at it at the positive side of things as staying in the present, visualizing the future, and seeing what I want, and then. And, and, and just sending out love to the universe. That, that's a, a daily ritual for me. And, uh, and just letting go and, and, and not trying to force anything. That's, that's the positive side. The negative side is yeah. holding on to things that are not productive. That, uh, and when we let go of those, and we finally do, I think we see more opportunities that come, not just with things that, you know, the opportunities that bring us uh, a, a widget, but opportunities that bring us something, a better relationship, a better symbiosis between a person maybe that you didn't have and that you have now or, or whatever it may be. With that theme, and it can be unrelated to that theme, is there a word or a phrase that you would have put on a billboard for millions of people to see? Love. 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 I mean, I would say before, love, kindness, because kindness is the first action that, that takes you to love. And I think now, more than ever, we need, we need kindness. And, um, and kindness is what, like I said, what, it, kindness is what brings you to love. Because love is, a, is, is in a way, is such a surreal uh, word, right? But kindness is right. not. Kindness is a direct and an action. And, and if we don't, in, really? and a choice. And if we don't engage in it, and we don't make it an effort to be kind, then love cannot ensue, period. So that is really, no matter what I've done to anybody in the past that maybe, we don't know, we know we, maybe we've said something that's been, uh, to, you know, that we don't think was hurt anybody, but maybe somebody was hurt by something we said or whatever it is. But but we can't do anything about it. All we can do is just now go forward and just be kind and be, be you know, for me. I, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm also speaking what, what's going on in the world is that we just, and so many people are showing it, by the way. All of these people that are helping other people, I mean, especially with COVID and these people on the front lines. And I, I mean, I'm not going to make this a we are the world chat right now, but... Uh, it is it is so tantamount that we need every every human being needs to feel like they're important, like they're need they're they're, they're they mean something and kindness. Yeah. I love it. I love these themes today, and I get the full impression from you that you exude kindness. <laughs> and I really appreciate you taking the time to share so much about your life today. And I know different parts of this conversation are going to resonate with different people, so. Thank you. Thank you for taking this time. Well, it was an honor and privilege to talk to you. And uh, let me know if you need anything else. And uh, I'm around. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Aaron Zygman. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 